Thank you, worship team. I'm going to read a text for us this morning, one that, if I'm honest with you, in its familiarity, has made it a little challenging to discern. I think this is the case with all things familiar, that at times we bring our own presumptions, expectations, understanding. But we know what this text potentially already has to say to us. But I would challenge us to open our eyes this morning. Or maybe pray for the courage to do so. So in the reading of the text, God does something. God transcends our own understanding, expectation, perception, and wants to offer us something new today. We read a text found in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, and it reads like this. Let's say this prayer before we read. We all need a little extra prayer today. Would you pray this prayer with me? Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that as your scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, and it reads like this. He, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, Half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to his house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. What do you see today? Perhaps on your commute into church or your commute to work, you see certain things but maybe fail to see other things. When we drive familiar routes, sometimes we get accustomed to a certain perception. This is made most apparent when we walk places. Have you ever walked somewhere that you've only ever driven before and you think, I didn't know there was a building there. (laughs) I didn't know that existed. That school was there. This house looked this way. I didn't know that looked a certain way. I think that potentially for all of us, we can fixate on the things that are familiar and then in turn cease to see the things that are perhaps right in front of us, the things that have always existed. So the things that we focus on not only stand at the front of our minds, but shape the way that we perceive all reality in front of us. That if we only see this thing, it will shape our expectations of what the day will bring. This becomes increasingly important when we read Scripture because we know, as we affirm time and time again, it was not written in a vacuum, but was written in a time and a place with rich detail that matters immensely for our own understanding. 
Over the past four weeks, we walked through these closing stories given to us in the gospel according to Luke. We've been walking through this series we're calling Restored, asking the questions, what feels broken in the world? And the follow-up question, how can it be restored? We've walked through these stories that serve as precursors to the ministry that Jesus would do that would eventually lead him to the cross. A time known as the Passion Narrative, one that is perhaps more famous than other times in Jesus' ministry. But these stories, the stories of the healing of the lepers we talked about three weeks ago, the two parables given to us that spoke of justice and mercy, and now the story today that speaks of a chief tax collector who was very rich. All these stories seek to set a sort of tone for the kind of work that Jesus is going to be doing, to reveal something to us, to perhaps open our eyes in places where we cannot see. Now in this journey, we've highlighted these key moments that we might understand with greater intensity, not just the work that Jesus wants to do in our lives, but the work that Jesus wants to do in our whole world. This fact is the heart of the gospel, that God would come down to this created world that he loves, cares for, live among its inhabitants, and reveal through the death and resurrection a way of life that is true, eternal, and redemptive. Last weekend, uh, Michaela and I went away on a, a pastor and spouse retreat. We're super grateful for the opportunity to do that, so thank you, those of you that filled in the void, but we got to go to the mountains, which is always a refreshing experience. It just fills the soul in ways we didn't know needed to be filled. We were there for the afternoon on Saturday, and we we walked from downtown in Banff up to the Banff Springs Hotel, this really beautiful hike if you've ever done it. It goes along the Bow River, and then right at the end, it has these steep stairs that you've got to walk up, so the first half's a little easier than the second half, but a fun hike nonetheless, and I love going up there. If you've ever been up to that hotel, even just to like walk around, like we we can barely afford to look at it, but we like going and looking at it anyway. But we walked up there and I was reminded just what like a, a, an image this is over the town, right? You can see it when you stand downtown, you see the kind of the spires, this like castle looking structure that looms over the town and kind of sets this tone of like, when you're here, you know, like you're in proximity to this like unbelievable place. This becomes increasingly important, this way of understanding geography especially when we read scripture. As I was reading this text this week, I got caught on the first two words, or the first sentence, perhaps. A, sto- a, a moment that maybe perhaps we skip over because we're anxious to get to the characters of the story. But the story opens up and says, as he was passing through Jericho, this town that existed about 25 kilometers from the gates of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the place where Jesus would culminate his ministry, where he would ride in on the back of a donkey and people would praise his name saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, but the same place where he would be betrayed and crucified. Before this, he stops in Jericho, a city that probably for most of us reminds us of the walls that came a-tumbling down in Israel's campaign to occupy the land of Canaan. But in the generations to follow, this very strategic location traded hands of a number of parties both because of its proximity to Jerusalem, its proximity to major trade routes, but also its existence on a spring, an oasis that served as a reprieve in the hot, barren wasteland of the desert. 
This is increasingly important because throughout history, we see why this place is so contentious, why people wanted to occupy it. This city that became known as the city of the palms. We could maybe imagine this is like San Diego in that moment. If you've ever been there, it's like the greatest place. I, this is where my wife is from, and I just harass her all the time because she took, in university, took a surfing class. I went to school in Oklahoma. I took a walking class. That was my elective, but <laughs> a pretty beautiful location if we can keep that on the back of our minds. This city, Jericho, in the time in which this text occurred, was owned by this man named Herod the Great. Yeah, that Herod. The one who was the, an arm of the Roman Empire that was oppressive, that sought the will of the Roman Empire over the will of all others, and serves as the king of Judea over this land of Israel. It is said that Herod built this, on this land a vacation home. Not even the place where he would mainly reside, but a place where he would go when he needed rest. He built this structure that was a sight to be seen, that loomed over the town, that set a tone for all things that would be expected in this time and this place. This place was said to have a, contained a, what's called a hippodrome, which is where chariot racing occurred, a theater, recreational pools, and even greater residences for some of the most elite members of society. In other words, this place could not have been a greater contrast to the way that others lived in this city. I would suggest to us that this matters immensely for our understanding of this very small and seemingly maybe insignificant text at times. Because much like when we go to towns like Banff and we see these structures kind of looming over the town that set expectation, that set understanding, that set our perceptions on what is to be expected in life, so too did these kind of structures said expectation, that perhaps people in poverty would walk by and be reminded of just how great their poverty was. People that wanted to get ahead in life would walk by and think, that's how I get ahead. If only one day I could live there. People that sought their own self-interest over the interest of others perhaps would be affirmed that structures like this existed. But because that structure exists, it must be successful in life to end up in a place like that. This all stands as the backdrop of this story for us today. There's three main characters besides this structure that all have an issue with seeing. Sight is a really important theme all throughout Scripture, particularly in the Gospel of Luke and in this story. And I'll just suggest three things to us this morning. First, the character of Zacchaeus, one who we see from the story has trouble seeing Jesus. We can't help but when we think of the name Zacchaeus, maybe you can get ahead of me. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Yeah, the song, we can't help for us that maybe grew up in Sunday school, this song is like embedded in our core, and when we hear it, we just want to like, I told Bob we could maybe add it to the set list if we have a little extra time today. <laughs> But this sort of song, while helpful for us to remember stories like this, can sometimes distract us from maybe what the story is trying to say on a deeper level. For us in our modern day, height, stature, is first and foremost measured by like our ability to reach the top of the cabinet. Right? We have things in, my, in our house that are up on the top of the cabinet, and I can always reach them, and I forget sometimes that Michaela can't reach them, so we have a ladder so she can get up and get those. But height and stature are first and foremost measured by those things. But in the early first century, height was measured by something else. It was measured by character, by virtue, 
by ability to contribute to the world. And so when Luke affirms that Zacchaeus was short, a wee little man, we might say, he's going deeper than just to say that he doesn't have a lot of inches to his name, but to say that this man, not much was expected of him. That he was short in character. That he was short in ability to contribute something positive to society because we know that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. People that were notorious for not only receiving the taxes that would be going towards Rome to people like Herod to build the very structures that existed, but they would notoriously scrape off the top. And now this man was trying to get close to Jesus. This fascinating detail reminds us of the expectation that others had of this man. That Zacchaeus was surely known by his peers. But I wonder how he looked at himself in the mirror. I wonder if this perception that others had of him reinforced every time he saw himself, potentially imagining nothing could come out of his life that would be good. Perhaps Zacchaeus carried with him this expectation that the only way that he was to get ahead in life was to climb up to the top of the hill and eventually reside in one of those elite homes. The second character in the story is the crowd. And while it's easy for us to critique Zacchaeus for his inability to see, I would say Zacchaeus is not the only one indicted by this story. For in fact, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus cannot see on account of the crowd. This is later fortified in the transformation of Zacchaeus, when the crowd, not rather than celebrating the work that God has done, begins to grumble, begins to complain, that the Jesus that they were following now all of a sudden is interested in somebody other than themselves. That perhaps Zacchaeus is not the only one that is failing to see what God is doing. That perhaps the crowd, because of their own expectations, their own desires for grandeur, for excellence, for success, has failed to see the hospitable work and posture to which Jesus calls us. See, Zacchaeus wasn't the only one that saw this palace on the ridge. Everybody that lived in that town knew of this place. Everyone in this town knew that this place embodied success. These very people that were following Jesus, five or ten verses later, would be celebrating his entrance into Jerusalem, but secretly wishing that he was carrying a sword. Hoping that maybe this Jesus, although he said he was there to serve, really was there to serve them, was there to, dis, to uproot the Roman Empire and then put them on the throne. A humbling reminder for us that when we follow Jesus, the power, the hope, the security that Jesus offers to us is not one that wields a sword, but hangs on a cross. Calls us to a life not of power, privilege, monetary gain, but one of submission, one of hospitality, one that seeks the interest of others above the interest of ourselves. The final character in this story is Jesus, the only one, I would say, who truly sees. For it says that he comes to the tree and he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus. To be seen is terrifying. Because to be seen 
is to be known for all that we are, both the good and the bad. To be seen requires us to be honest, requires us to face the things that perhaps we have long forgotten about ourselves. Jesus sees Zacchaeus in this moment. He sees him for all that he is, but also for all that he could be. As we close this conversation about being restored, I think if we could take anything from this text, my hope is that it would be this, that God sees us for all that we are. Maybe some of us have been seen before. Maybe we've been seen by people who have taken advantage, been wounded by people who have abused that vulnerability. Perhaps we are in places where we don't feel like we can ever be seen again. These burdens are real. Perhaps Zacchaeus feared to be seen because all he saw when he looked in the mirror was somebody short in character, in value, in virtue. But we affirm in this story that the one who sees is not the one who leaves them where they are. That the one who sees us this morning, for all that we are, both the good and the bad, calls us to a life that is true, that is eternal, that is sustaining, that is real. And so, as we struggle to be seen in our everyday lives, this story reminds us that when we humbly offer ourselves to Jesus, saying, here I am. For all that I am, both the good and the bad, both the ups and the downs, here is all of me that God does not leave us there. And for that, we are grateful. For that, we are grateful because we know that where we are is not what God envisions we could be. That who we are, while broken and battered and wounded, when we follow the God who restores, will make all things new in our lives. And so these final thoughts as the story closes is that Zacchaeus is invited to come down. This language is really important for us because it's the same kind of language that's used in John chapter 1 when it says God came down, put on flesh, and dwelt among us. This term that some people refer to as the incarnation, this moment in which God came down into the world, this sort of mysterious, odd behavior of a God that would care so much about the world, that would care so much about its battered, bruised, and broken self that would come down to this world and bind God's self to the very brokenness that plagued this world. And so when Zacchaeus is invited to come down, he's invited to do the very thing that God has done time and time again. Rather than upholding an ideal of what my life could be in success, what my interests could offer, what my own achievement could bring about. That God invites Zacchaeus to this posture that he has modeled time and time again throughout Scripture that says, not my will, but your will be done. That those that would follow in the way of Jesus would be people that would sacrifice our own expectations, our own positions of influence, our own power, our own pursuits of success for the needs of those around them. 
For the story says that when Zacchaeus comes down, he makes this offering. He's so overwhelmed by the transformative grace of Christ that he offers to pay back all that he has wronged times four and to pay all half of his possessions to the poor. An important remembrance in this story is that this offering would have assuredly bankrupt Zacchaeus. Like he didn't have endless money to offer half of what he had to the poor and then You know who he defrauded? Everybody. Every single person in that town. This was way above and beyond anything that Scripture would invite people to. All the way back in Leviticus, people that wrote were writing wrongs were expected at most to offer double. And Zacchaeus goes above and beyond that. This reminds us that the transformative grace of Christ, the restoring work that God does in us, in our hearts, in our lives, does not just transform us, but that the offering that Zacchaeus made would transform his neighborhood. It would transform his family. It would transform his friends, his co-workers, all those who would have seen him, that Jericho perhaps would no longer be a place that idealized the power of the palace but would be a place that upheld the hospitality that we are all invited to. The first question we asked, what is broken? So the worship team comes up, we'll close with this last few thoughts. I think it's easy for us to answer that question because we know a lot of things are broken. It's easy for us to look around the world and say, well, that needs fixing, that needs fixing. A political structure, an economic demand, a social system, Maybe we can affirm the things that are broken in other people, the things they need to do, the things they need to change. But I think the honest posture is that we would be courageous enough to acknowledge the places where we need to be restored. That we cannot read this story and not ask, why couldn't Zacchaeus see Jesus? Because the crowd was in the way. How many people do you think came to try to see Jesus before and finding no trees to climb, walked away? How can our own pursuits, expectations, longings for an efficiency in our work distract us from the call of Christ? See, Jesus was on his way to to Jerusalem He was on mission. He was headed somewhere important. Zacchaeus was a detour, something that distracted him, pulled him away. One might read the text this way. I would suggest to us as we close, Zacchaeus was not a detour. For he says in the closing in verse 10, Christ has come to save the lost. For in fact, this is the very purpose of the Christian community. This is the very purpose of why we exist, to be a people that rather than longing for an efficient journey, one that prioritizes our own needs, expectations, and longings, says, God, give me the eyes to see. Give me the eyes to see the work that is assuredly right in front of me, but times I don't have the will to see. As we as a church continue through our journey together, as a community of faith 
as we long for restoration, we know that that begins with an honesty to pray this prayer. God, would you give me the eyes to see? Would you give us the eyes and ears to discern the places to which you are calling us? And for that, we thank the Lord this morning. Let's close with a song. Whether you want to stand and sing or pray, we say this often, but I, I, I fear that maybe we don't hear it. These altars are open. I know that sometimes it's challenging maybe for some to come to the altar, and that's okay, but I want them to be reminders that prayer is an important part of our worship. So if you need prayer this morning, would you reach out to the Lord? If you long for the eyes to see, ask that. In faith, knowing that the one we ask is the one who sees us first. Let's sing this song together.